please turn again to Matthew chapter 10. Um, we are looking at the first 15 verses uh, of the, the chapter this morning. Uh, the sending out of the 12, commissioning of the 12. <clears throat> Why can't Christians just keep quiet about their faith? Why do they need to go around uh, persuading other people to think the same way as they do? I, I've got my truth, you've got your truth, uh, we've got the same truth. Why can't we just respect one another? Why do Christians need to go around trying to make people believe the way that they do? That's a very, very common attitude uh, people have today. Uh, if you're not a Christian, maybe it's something that you uh, hold to, that you believe, uh, even this morning. Why do Christians uh, feel that they have to go talking about uh, Christianity? Why can't they keep it uh, to themselves? And we'll find many uh, answers to that objection, the passage that we look at this morning. But by way of introduction, uh, let me just say this. If you had a cure for cancer and you knew it was effective, then uh, you wouldn't find cancer sufferers saying to you, why do you come around here shoving your cancer cure down my throat? All hinges on the truth of the message that Christians have to share. If it's a true message, then it is the height of cruelty not to share it. Uh, and this was the view, uh, actually, of someone who was uh, an atheist. Uh, <clears throat> this guy here, Penn Gillette, uh, he's a comedian, uh, uh, illusionist, uh, magician. Uh, and he, he was... Uh, evangelize or proselytize the word is when you share your faith with somebody uh, by a Christian. And this was his response uh, to that. I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize or evangelize or share. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make you feel socially awkward and atheists who think people uh, shouldn't proselytize and who say just leave me alone and keep your religion to yourself how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize how much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that i mean if i believe beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that truck was bearing down on you there's a second point when i tackle you and this is more important than that. Is that perceptive? This is from a man who's not, well, I know yet, Christian, but he recognizes that if the message is uh, true, it needs to be shared. Uh, last time we were in Matthew's Gospel, we were <coughs> considering Jesus' compassion. And it was through his compassion that Jesus uh, looked out and saw that there were many who needed to hear this message and urged his disciples to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest field. Now, we see that happening. Here is what happens when we pray that prayer. Jesus is the Lord of the harvest and Jesus sends out workers into the harvest field. And so here, Jesus is commissioning the 12 disciples to go out into his harvest field. And as we go through these first 15 verses, we're going to be, it's going to be really simple. We're just going to uh, look at uh, 
what it's saying pretty much on the surface. We're going to look at the, the people that Jesus uses. Then uh, the fact that Jesus gives us a message about his kingship. Uh, and third, believing in Jesus uh, makes life better for people. Fourth, Jesus' message of good news is not for sale. It's free. Uh, fifth, if we obey Jesus in telling others, Jesus provides us with all we need along the way. And sixth, Jesus' message always divides people. So first, let's look then at the, the, the people that Jesus chooses. Verse 1, he called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease <coughs> and sickness. In verse 2, uh, we have the word apostle. So verse 1, it's disciple, it's used. Verse 2, it's apostle. Now, uh, the word apostle basically simply means sent one. And it's used in a number of different ways in the New Testament. It can simply mean somebody who uh, is sent. So somebody uh, who is sent from a particular church to another. But there's a technical sense with which it's used. A particular sense. And it's used in that sense here. <coughs> of the 12, <coughs> 12 apostles. And these were uh, <coughs> uh, people that Jesus had chosen to follow him closely. And who would be witnesses to his resurrection. That was one of the qualifications of an apostle. Uh, they would be... <coughs> Uh, it would be from this group and their associates that Jesus uh, would entrust the, the task of writing scripture. And these apostles would be the foundation of the new church. To these men, <coughs> Jesus uh, gave the power to work signs and wonders which would affirm them as apostles, confirm them in the sight of others as being uh, the authoritative messengers of the living God. Now, because these 12 are apostles, <coughs> uh, they are in a special category, obviously, and we can't expect to do everything that an apostle did. There are no more apostles today. If, if, if there were apostles today, then uh, that guy would need to be over 2,000 years old because he would need, need to see Jesus uh, when he was raised from the dead. And, <clears throat> and so they are in a special category. However, that does not let us off the hook in terms of sharing the gospel. It doesn't mean to say that we are not uh, in a different way on a mission. Because as we read the gospel account, every time someone comes uh, to, to faith in Jesus, uh, the first and most spontaneous thing they do is they go and tell other people about uh, their discovery. Uh, you just can't hold them back. Sometimes Jesus actually uh, almost puts a restraining order on them because uh, it threatens to, to push his mission too, for, too, uh, in a direction perhaps that uh, is not right or too fast. But people can't help themselves. And so the woman that he meets at the well in Sychar uh, goes and tells about this man who told me everything I ever did. The man Legion from whom demons are cast out, goes back to his hometown and tells the people about uh, the, the wonderful salvation that he has experienced. Uh, in the book of Acts, when the Christians are driven out of Jerusalem, they went spreading the news of Jesus to everyone 
as they went. They weren't apostles. They were ordinary punters. But they told everybody about Jesus. Because this is what Christians do. From the overflow of their hearts, they speak about Jesus. When we look at the 12 apostles, uh, one of the things that strikes us is just what a motley crew they were. <clears throat> they are so different. There's no uniformity at all about them. Simon Peter. It's interesting that every, every time the apostles are enumerated, Simon Peter is the first one on the list. Uh, he has a, <clears throat> a certain primacy. He's a spokesman. And remember, it was Simon Peter who... Uh, at Caesarea Philippi, who declared that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, made this great confession on which the church, Jesus said, would be built. Energetic, impetuous, optimistic, uh, by trade, fisherman, working with his brother Andrew. He lived first in Bethsaida, then in Capernaum in Galilee. Uh, By the grace of God, he's changed from being an unstable character to being a rock-like, dependable witness. Uh, Someone who wrote two epistles himself, and who is traditionally connected with Mark. Uh, Mark is thought to have received uh, his his knowledge from Peter. Andrew, Peter's brother, was the one uh, who brought his brother to Jesus first. Uh, He's one of these people who's always working away in the background steadily. The kind of person whom the church depends, uh, who's always bringing people uh, to hear about Jesus. James and John, also brothers, called sons of thunder. For obvious reasons, they had a fiery temperament. Um, James was the first of the disciples to be martyred for his faith. Uh, On the other hand, John lived to a a very old age. Uh, John not only wrote the gospel that bears his name, and the three letters or epistles. But John also wrote the the book of Revelation. And it's an old age, exiled to the Isle of Patmos, that God gives him a revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. In his his, uh, gospel, he refers to himself as a disciple whom Jesus loved. Philip, like Peter and Andrew, was also from Bethsaida. And when he was called by Jesus, he immediately brought Nathanael. Philip is the one who speaks out in John 6, asking about whether there will be enough bread uh, to feed the 5,000 when all they have is this uh, young boy's uh, loaves and fishes. Slow to understand Jesus at times, but his question, Lord, show us the Father and it will be enough for us, brings out the beautiful response from Jesus He who has seen me has seen the Father, Philip. Bartholomew, now this is where it becomes, you know, quite a challenge to the kids to learn these names because some of the names have got variants and Bartholomew is a variant for Nathaniel. So uh, Bartholomew uh, was brought, or Nathaniel was brought by Philip to Jesus and Jesus said of him, Look, truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Thomas uh, is the one we know as doubting Thomas, but when he at last sees the risen Saviour, it's Thomas, this doubting Thomas, who has this great uh, affirmation of faith, my Lord and my God. Matthew, 
uh, who was also called Levi, was a tax collector, whom Jesus called to himself uh, whilst he was in the midst of collecting taxes. Uh, James, the son of Alphaeus, uh, is also called James the, the Less in Mark 15, verse 40. And that may well be, that might be a kind of variant of our Scottish wee James. It may just be because James was shorter than the other James, uh, rather than uh, uh, less significant. Uh, <clears throat> his mother Mary accompanied Jesus and stood near the cross at the end. Thaddeus, uh, Thaddeus is another one of these variants. Thaddeus is sometimes called Judas, and it's always Judas, not Iscariot uh, in the Gospels. Uh, mentioned only in John 14, 22, where he wants Jesus to, to seize the initiative and show himself to the world. Second Simon is Simon the Zealot, which indicates that he was part of the, 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 the nationalist party in, in uh, Israel that wanted to overthrow the, uh, the Roman occupation, deeply resented the taxes that were imposed. And then finally, Judas Iscariot, which means Judas, the man from Kirioth. Sometimes just referred to as Judas who would betray him or the betrayer. Here was a man who was responsible absolutely for his wicked deeds and yet in God's sovereign purposes ordained to a handover his master that Jesus might be crucified for sinners. What an amazing group of people this is. Uh, <clears throat> some of them we know hardly anything about. I mean, think, of, think about it. Uh, Thaddeus, James the Less, Simon the Zealot. You know, we, some of them are just mentioned once. Uh, what uh, an encouragement that is to us, actually, as well, isn't it? That, that God uses uh, all of us, whether we are prominent or not, whether we are uh, frontline people or background support uh, group type people. He uses all kinds of temperaments. Uh, people <coughs> who are uh, optimistic, like Peter, or Thomas, the pessimist, Simon, the, the nationalist, loathing the taxes imposed by a foreign country. Matthew, who was actually collecting the taxes for this foreign country. Peter, John, Matthew uh, end up being renowned through their writings. Uh, James the Less, uh, who also played his part, who was part of this mission and yet remains in obscurity today. These are the kind of people Jesus used then. And in a different way, Jesus is using the same breadth of servants today. What encouragement that is, because we are obviously uh, an assembled group that's very, very different. We're all different from one another, different temperaments. And God doesn't uh, squeeze us into an identical Christian. We're not made monotonously the same, but he uses us uh, in all of our differences. What about the message? The message Jesus gives the apostle is, is this, the kingdom of heaven is near. Now that wasn't all they said. Quite clearly, uh, <coughs> if it had been, there would have been some puzzled expressions. If you go uh, down to 
uh, Cookbridge Main Street and you, you simply tell people the kingdom of heaven is near they're not going to understand very much the, the message needs to be unpacked a little bit more but it's in seed form here uh, this, this kind of core part of the message is telling us a great deal uh, the, the nearness of the kingdom uh, is underlining a sense of urgency uh, a need for decision Jesus draws near as the kingdom draws near. The kingdom drawing near is Jesus drawing near. And he does so bringing a call to decision, a call to commitment. We can never remain unchanged, untouched when Jesus draws near. And so that proclamation challenges people to a response to the, the one whose kingdom is drawing near. And obviously it's telling us about the, the coming of one who is a king. Jesus is a king. So it's a big deal uh, whether we are subject to the king or not. Uh, it is a matter of life and death, in fact. And as his kingdom draws near, we are made to realize that we have actually been rebels against the king. We have not done the things that have pleased him. We've lived for ourselves. Uh, and rather imperiously, we have lived as though we were king. And we have lived as though Jesus did not exist. Uh, we have excluded him from our lives, from our decision making. He has not been the focal point of our, of our passion. And therefore, as the kingdom and the king draws near, we need to make our peace with this king. And we need to repent. And we need to acknowledge that we have been rebels against his rule. And we need to receive the forgiveness that he brings. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? At this point, the disciples themselves wouldn't have been able to communicate, except in the most sketchy way, how that forgiveness would be achieved. But we, on this side of the cross, know that it was by going to the cross as a substitute, as a representative of his people, that the offensiveness of sin would be dealt with it would be brought out into the open there would be a judicial penalty and Jesus would bear that and because of bearing the penalty in my place I may be forgiven not only that I can know new life the Holy Spirit comes and renews me I find purpose for living uh, I find that the life that I was intended to live is one of of grace and meaning and joy peace the kingdom of heaven is near thirdly the life that Jesus brings it's interesting that they're not only to, to proclaim a, a verbal message but they're to actually do things which show the love of God heal the sick, raise the dead cleanse those who have leprosy drive out demons now you're probably thinking at this point Am I expected to do that kind of stuff today? I don't see many people being raised from the dead. So I look around the church and the activities of the church. And that is a fair comment. <laughs> and that's where it's so important for us to recognise where we are on the timeline. Here we are uh, with <coughs> Jesus on earth. Uh, with a mission which is being done by 12 men who have been called by Jesus as founders 
of the church. And we are in a, a particular place in the history of God's dealings with us. And so, for example, because Jesus has not yet gone to the cross, been raised and ascended, they are only to go to Jews. So that's the difference, isn't it? They are not to go to non-Jews or Gentiles, uh, nor even to Samaritans. Samaritans were a mixed race. After one of the, uh, the, the neighboring nations had uh, overwhelmed northern Israel, they, they mixed up surrounding peoples, and the Samaritans were a, a product of that, and they had a, a mixed up uh, religion also. At this point in history, Jesus, the Son of God, has come as a Jew to the people who had the promises of God, and the priority is for the Jew. The Jews come first, and after the resurrection, Jesus would send the disciples out into all the earth. Now, Jesus, God, uh, can and still does heal people today. But what we have here is a particular ministry of healing, casting out of demons and raising from the dead that is connected largely with the apostles in the New Testament. And these signs and wonders gave authority to the men who would write the New Testament and found the church. There's a similar uh, uniqueness to the, the way that they, did, they went about their, their mission. Uh, they weren't to fundraise and they weren't to pack spare clothes. They were to experience God's bounty. Now, <clears throat> at the end of Luke, they're told to take the very things that they are warned not to take this time around. Uh, here, when they go to a, a town that rejects the message, they're to shake the dust off their feet as a symbolic act of rejection. But in the book of Acts, when Paul and his missionaries are rejected by towns, they actually found churches there. In the teeth of rejection, uh, they found churches. So, simply to say, you can get tied up in knots unless you realise that the fact that uh, there is a, a development, there's a, a history going on here. And what, uh, what happened at the time of the apostles uh, is uniquely relevant to where God's plan is at that time. But the point we shouldn't lose sight of is that when people become Christians, their lives are better. That is universally uh, true throughout all ages. When the power of God breaks into a life, there is substantial healing. Addictions are broken. Hot tempers are cooled down. Relationships are mended. People who are lonely find a family that loves them. Uh, people who are lost find direction for their lives. Now, when you become a Christian, not everything is hunky-dory. Not everything is a bed of roses. But things become a whole heap better because the kingdom of heaven is near. Uh, and what's that saying? It's saying that heaven has invaded the real earth with Jesus. That a little bit of heaven comes to earth in the believer's life. We have a foretaste of what is to come. This is a show house. Uh, 
as you go out, um, you go out the Glasgow Road and uh, where they're building all the new houses at uh, Drumpelier there in Bargetti, uh, <coughs> a whole lot of the houses are still, you know, half completed. You know, you can see the timber frame. Uh, some of them have got uh, the block work half done. But on the Coatbridge end, there is a show house. It's completed. Uh, it is in a walk-in condition. There's a garden, uh, there's even trees growing outside. And the show house is there to tell would-be buyers, this is what the other houses will be like when they are finished. This is a foretaste of what it's going to be like to step into one of these new houses uh, in Bergedi. And that's what Jesus is uh, doing with the miracles that, that come with the apostles. Uh, this is a foretaste of heaven. Because heaven will be a place where there is no sin and sickness and suffering. Uh, but there will be perfection. All the things that mar our lives will have been healed. And we will uh, be with Christ uh, in glory. But... Friends, we are not living in the show house. <laughs> we're not in the show house. We're in, if you like, these, these half-built houses. We're works in progress. And we've only got uh, a little sense of what is yet to come. We're not there yet. We're not going to step into the show house until Jesus comes again. Fourth, there's a, a freeness to the message that Jesus gives. He tells them they're not to take any fee for their services. Freely you have received, freely give. Think about that. The, the, the apostles have been given authority over sickness by their master. You could really turn that to financial benefit. You know? Just ask for a little donation. A little donation to the church. And Jesus is saying there is to be no fee attached to the gospel. The gospel is the grace of God. And the grace of God is by definition free. And therefore we are never to give the impression to anyone that there is a price tag to the gospel. Never to give the impression that they will know acceptance and forgiveness by giving something to the church. Because that is an offence to God and to the poor. The gospel is for the poorest of the poor. And sadly, uh, the church down through the ages has not always recognised that. Before the Reformation, the Catholic Church actually sold forgiveness. Johann Tetzel, a Roman Catholic friar, went around uh, collecting money for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, and he had a little box uh, for collecting money and a rhyme that went, when... The coin within the box rings the soul from fiery purgatory springs. What an offence to the gospel that you could buy forgiveness with money. And with that money, uh, the, the Basilica of St. Peter's in the Vatican was, was built from the sale of forgiveness. The gospel is free. Fifthly, uh, if we go out in all of our weakness... And our, our knee knocking, trembling, we can rely upon God to give us all that we need to do his work. <clears throat> Jesus told the disciples not to pack extra clothes, not to take money, and not to worry about their accommodation. 
He wanted them to learn the lesson that God will provide all that we need. God is our provider. At the same time, they were to be wise. Wise about the use of accommodation. Uh, The instruction to remain in the same house was so that they wouldn't give the appearance of of continually being on the lookout for an upgrade. You know, they heard that somebody's got a, you know, a long suite attached to the bedroom. And uh, so they moved to somewhere else. They were to avoid any offence being attached to the gospel. They were to trust God. Now, again, it's not a blueprint for how the church does mission. There's a uniqueness to this particular uh, incident. But at this time, there should be no fundraising. It's to be a faith mission, and God will provide all that they need. Then lastly, uh, Jesus warns them that as they go out uh, with the message, the kingdom of heaven is near. Even although they are proclaiming this message with accompanying signs and wonders, they're not going to find that everybody embraces the, the message and says, to them, what must I do to be saved? That will not be the way it goes. It will divide opinion. Isn't that remarkable? Even in Jesus' day, even when it's the apostles who are the proclaimers, opinion is divided. There will be those who receive them, and they will be blessed by receiving them. And we find that true throughout Scripture, that where people give accommodation, hospitality to God's workers... Their homes are blessed. Think of Potiphar's household being blessed by Joseph. The widow of Zarephath, who was blessed for her hospitality to Elijah. Uh, Mary and Martha. Uh, Zacchaeus, all giving hospitality to Jesus and being blessed. Lydia to Paul and Silas. All these people blessed of God. The disciples are to show generosity and discernment. They're to pronounce the peace of God upon those who receive them into their homes and they're to discern those who reject them and they are to make it clear the consequences of rejecting the message. To shake the dust off your uh, your feet uh, was deeply symbolic. (laughs) Uh, When a Jew went travelling and they went to a non-Jewish land, Uh, so keen was their sense of the the set-apartness of Israel that when they crossed the border, they shook the Gentile dust off their sandals. And when the apostles do that on leaving a particular home that has rejected them, they are saying, in effect, that uh, this home uh, is to the gospel a Gentile home. It's a home of non-believers. And that would be a dreadful uh, indictment on them. The warning is explicit in Jesus' next words. I tell you the truth, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. People are wrong uh, if they pretend that it's no big deal to be indifferent to the message of Jesus. uh, To to treat it uh, as simply another uh, option on the the menu that they can either decide to go for or overlook. It's a big deal. It has eternal consequences. And friends, that's why 
we have a huge responsibility to be busy in the harvest field. Jesus says that the more that people know of the gospel, the more responsibility that they have. And we're in a country which, though it's described often as post-Christian, certainly still has Bibles aplenty, church steeples in every corner to remind people of the reality of God. Hadn't we better be busy urging people to trust in Jesus? Hadn't we also to be very careful that nothing that we do would bring any shame on the gospel? Anything that we do that shows a lack of discernment or could be misinterpreted, we would want to avoid all of these things because the issues are so weighty. They are so eternal. We may not be apostles, but we've been sent out with a glorious message that Jesus the King is drawing near with his kingdom. He brings forgiveness. He transforms lives. And eternal consequences turn on whether people receive him or reject him. May the Lord lay uh, that great task upon our hearts uh, today and in the days to come. May he bless to us his, his word. Amen.